Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Of course, I am bouncing off the walls because we have got another ancient historian. As you all very well know, love ancient history, but... Do not tell anyone. We've got with us today Jonathan Eaton, who is an ancient historian, of course. He's an author, and his newest book is called Leading the Roman Army, Soldiers and Emperors, and he's exactly here to talk to us about that. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me on the podcast. It's tremendously exciting to be here, and I'm a big fan of the previous episodes that I've listened to. Oh, thank you. Do you love our ancient history ones? Tell, tell, Tell me you love the ancient history ones. Absolutely, yeah. I'm uh, I'm all for ancient history, but I'm very fortunate with my field that there's a lot of comparative material as well. So uh, a vast range of the podcasts that you've done so far have been really interesting from my perspective. Oh, thank you. We, we like we like to hear positive things. But listen, we're here to talk about ancient history, and we're going to be talking about the Roman army. So why don't you kick us off with why was the Roman army important? The Roman Empire was an incredibly complex political system. I mean, just thinking about the size of it, really, stretching from the River Tyne to the River Euphrates. So the emperor had an incredible challenge in governing that. And in order to do so, he relied upon the army, both for his political security and stability, but also the security of the empire itself. But within that, there there was a real challenge and attention that on the one hand the emperor relied on the army for his security but the army also posed the most significant threat to his rule and just thinking about the size of the army as a microcosm really of Roman society as a whole so during the imperial period there are around 300,000 troops scattered across the empire the majority of them at the periphery around half of whom were in the legions, the citizen troops, and the other half roughly were the auxiliaries, the non-citizen soldiers. This is a vast community spread across the imperial provinces. And in fact, it, it might be better to consider it as a series of communities with a set of shared beliefs. But when we study the Roman army, we get a real insight into the political, social and economic structures of the empire itself. Was that actually a good idea to join the Roman army and was it a good career? I think it's important to consider this uh, from a relative perspective compared to the other opportunities that would have been in place for many potential recruits to the army. So on the one hand, obviously being a member of the armed forces brought with it the risk of injury or death. 
But as the famous historian Ramsay McMullen once said, in fact, for most Roman soldiers, they probably rarely saw any violence apart from outside a tavern on a Saturday night. There were periods of intensive warfare, but for most of the time, most soldiers were probably living a relatively peaceful life according to the internal schedules of the army camps. But being a soldier brought with it numerous benefits which were otherwise very difficult to obtain within the Roman world. So first of all is pay. That pay is guaranteed from the emperor, so it's stable and it's secure. And obviously a failure to pay the troops was uh, really risking disaster for the emperor in terms of causing civil war. You could also be assured as a soldier that you would be clothed, that you would be fed, that you would be housed within the camps. Inevitably, it brought with it a sense of protection because you're part of an armed community and therefore you don't have to worry about um, broader challenges in the Roman world in terms of banditry or disorder. You're on a career pathway which will ultimately lead to significant discharge benefits when you become a veteran and you move into civilian life but it's also going to afford you considerable status and an identity as a soldier. And there are both good and bad things about that. So as a soldier, you're part of that military community. You're associated directly with the emperor and the imperial regime. But we see in many sources, and in fact, it, we see it frequently in the Bible as well, that soldiers are perceived sometimes by civilian communities as oppressors. But nevertheless, if you're a soldier, you have a status which you otherwise would find it difficult to obtain in the Roman world. But the most significant benefit really within the imperial period for joining the army is that it affords a high level of social mobility, which otherwise would be difficult to obtain. So that by progressing through the army, you can expand your career, you can increase your prospects in terms of salary, in terms of wider benefits, but also potentially to obtain uh, posts beyond a military career in terms of the governance of the provinces. So on balance, I think joining the army really brings considerable benefits to individuals, though we shouldn't also ignore the fact that sometimes with the Roman army, it's easy to feel that it's familiar, that it's very similar to the modern world because we recognise the uniforms, we recognise the structures, the camps, etc. It seems oddly reminiscent sometimes of our modern armed forces. But there's a real sense of otherness of the army and indeed the Roman world in general that I think it's really important that we remember. So for lower skilled people, this would pretty much be ideal because you haven't got really any prospects for example you know a low menial job but here you get fed clothed uh, you get paid you get a good retirement and you get advancement as you said that's correct absolutely it gives you an identity and a trajectory in terms of your career and your life chances that for many people in the lower classes of the Roman world would, would have been very difficult to otherwise obtain it's also worth saying as well that you know, there were downsides to this beyond the risk of injury or death. So 
that in, can include mobility. So at particular times during the imperial period, particularly when there were major conflicts uh, underway, particularly on the Rhine and Danube, there were significant movements of army units across the empire. And of course, if you'd been based in a particular province for a period of time, you would have built up social connections. Uh, you might even be raising children, etc. And that becomes increasingly difficult when you're having to shift around the empire. However, over time, gradually the legions became more settled in particular places and that became less of an issue. Okay, so we touched a little bit on the lower class, um, but what actually makes a Roman soldier and where do they all come from? It's a very good question and the recruitment patterns of the army changed gradually during the imperial period following uh, the first emperor, Augustus. So initially, the army was drawn predominantly from Italy, um, and there was a view that this was the best approach, that you would create Italian legions who would drive forward the aims of the empire. But there was a real challenge politically around getting the balance right between the need for willing volunteers to serve in the army and the need to send soldiers to often remote locations. Now, on an annual basis, it's reasonable to assume that around 5,000 to 6,000 recruits would have been needed annually for the 30 legions alone, uh, and that's notwithstanding the auxilia. But actually filling those ranks uh, is a delicate process because obviously if you're conscripting recruits, they're often not the prime sort of soldiers that you would want, they can desert, they can rebel, etc. So there is a really clear balancing act. In the final decades of the Republic, before the rise of Augustus, there was around 420,000 Italians serving in the legions, but that had become increasingly unpopular. So the first Emperor Augustus began to limit conscription within Italy itself, recognising the political problems that that caused, apart from where there were particular crises, such as the loss of some of the legions in Germany, which required a sudden investment in additional resource into the German armies. Instead, Italians uh, tended to fill the units within Rome, in particular the Praetorian Guard, the bodyguards of the emperor and his family, because that was a prime position in terms of pay, benefits, being based in the city, being able to swan around the city in a high-status uniform. And increasingly, the army units in the provinces were recruited locally within the provincial areas. And by the time we reached the Emperor Hadrian in the early uh, 2nd century AD, the provinces were mainly local recruitment grounds for the legions. Of course, as army bases became uh, ever more established in particular regions, the children of soldiers fed into the ranks as well, and it also almost becomes uh, quite self-perpetuating overall. Now, there were occasions where conscriptions had to take place, and that was mainly during times of emergency where uh, particular gaps in the army had to be filled or where there was a need for rapid expansion in military manpower. But they increasingly became quite rare outside of that specific context. In terms of what it means to become a soldier, well, you're essentially signing up for around 25 years of service. In terms of how you actually get into the army, from the sources, we're aware really of two 
uh, key checks that were made. First of all was the exam you would expect around physical fitness that the individual can cope with the rigours of army life but there was also a check on legal eligibility as well to make sure that this individual uh, was a citizen if they were going into the legions and weren't wanted uh, for any crimes. Interest in literacy wasn't required to become a soldier though as a soldier progressed in his career having uh, literacy skills inevitably became an advantage with some of the positions that were available to them. I've got a question with the topic actually but you said they have to be citizens to join uh, the Roman army but how could you become a citizen if you are for example uh, in the province of Syria or uh, Gaul for example? Yeah it's, it's a good question and this is this is really one of the most successful mechanisms of the imperial regime of how you conquer new provinces but then you take those provincial populations through a process which means that they wish to become Roman, that the Roman lifestyle is something to be admired and citizenship is a key part of this. It brings real benefits for the individual both in terms uh, of taxation uh, but also in terms of legal protection as well and there are a number of ways that this could be obtained so entire groups of populations could be afforded citizenship under particular circumstances but interestingly the army is a key driver for this so if I am a non-citizen let's say I'm an inhabitant of a recently conquered area I can sign up to join the army as a member of an auxiliary unit so a non-citizen unit and when I complete my service, one of the benefits I would receive is citizenship, that I become a Roman citizen. And most importantly, that benefit is afforded to my children as well. So they become citizens if they wish they could join the legions. But otherwise, my, my family is increasingly socially mobile. So can you talk us through uh, an average career? Would there be any possibility of advancement? There would, and there would be uh, quite significant opportunities for this. And there's a considerable amount of evidence that this is exactly what many of the recruits were seeking in terms of that career trajectory. So, as I mentioned, uh, as a new recruit, you're signing up essentially for a 25-year period, uh, and all being well, you would reach uh, the end of that and become a veteran and achieve numerous benefits as a result. Now, probably as a soldier, um, you're likely to be based in a particular area for a prolonged period of time. So as I mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast, although there are periods of time where units are mobile, increasingly they're becoming fixed in particular places. But what is interesting is there's significant evidence for mobility beyond the army bases themselves. So what's interesting is when we visit Roman forts, you know, the likes of uh, Vindolanda, Housesteads, Chester, etc., we tend to imagine that these are filled with Roman soldiers going about their business. And often they would be, but in fact soldiers were pretty mobile individually, and there's a key piece of evidence from this from Vindolanda, which is one of the Vindolanda tablets that have been preserved, these bureaucratic documents about how the uh, unit of Vindolanda was operating, said that out of 752 soldiers and six centurions, only 296 were actually in the army base at the time the document was drawn up. The others are essentially mobile across the local area, potentially across the province as a whole. A similar document from Egypt 
recording and auxiliary unit records that around 27% of that unit are spread across the countryside. So there's an awful lot of movement, there's an awful lot of communication going out, and that's quite significant. If I join the Legion, when I'm looking to progress, and hopefully I would want to become a centurion. In order to do that, there's a number of options open to me, and there's really two layers beneath that of centurion. The first initial layer are called the immunes. It's where we get the word uh, immune from. And what it basically means is that I would have special duties, which means that I am immune. I don't have to take part in some of the uh, standard duties of a soldier. And the immunes uh, are generally the likes of medical orderlies. They could be craftsmen, etc. The level beyond that are what are called the principales. They have a slightly higher salary, and that's the layer of soldiers beneath the centurion. They tend to have uh, specialist roles, such as a standard bearer, or such as an optio, who is the second in command to a centurion. And I would seek to progress through those roles and ultimately become a centurion. While we're on the topic of a centurion, what can you tell us what exactly a centurion is? Yeah, the centurions provide the professional backbone of the army. So they command the centuries, the standard unit of legionaries. But in fact, they were the professional officers of the army itself. They were the instigators of discipline. So those are the officers who would uh, discipline individual or groups of soldiers if uh, their discipline began to break down, and they're often depicted with a vine stick, which is their symbol of authority. They're also responsible for uh, essentially the cohesion of the legion itself, of developing that sense of military community. And because there are a relatively limited number of them within each legion, it means that over time they become a really established body of men and real experts in how the army itself runs. They're a bit like the sergeant majors of uh, modern day armies, but they're incredibly important for how the army actually operates on the ground. I'm not very good at military history, but for some strange reason, I've always had this mental image of my head when people talk about centurion to be this sort of magical, mythical soldier that's like incredibly amazing at using a sword or a lance and just basically a super soldier. That's what I've had in my mind. So you've kind of kind of deflated the idea for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's interesting you say that because um, it is a popular image. And, and one of the reasons for that actually predates the empire. It's, it's the writings of Julius Caesar. Um, who obviously was writing about his exploits in Gaul. And when he's writing, he often describes the exploits of his centurions. Uh, in fact, there's a pair called Pullo and Varinus uh, who undertake heroic acts several times throughout the conflict. So there is this real, um, you know, this real narrative that's created around the role of centurions. But there's also this element of being the instigators of military discipline. So I mentioned that use of the the vine staff 
there's a story in AD 14 of a centurion in the German legions who had the nickname Cado Alteram. Cado Alteram means give me another. And the reason for that nickname was he would beat the soldiers so hard that his vine staff would break and he would scream give me another so he could carry on with the beating. So there's, there's a number of different aspects of the role of Centurion, but for me, they're absolutely critical for how the army operates. Ouch! That, that's all that's going through our mind is 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 ouch when you mention the beta. So let's let's stick on that subject of discipline. You've mentioned obviously beating with a vine stick, very painful. What other forms of discipline do the soldiers face? The theme of discipline is is really interesting in terms of how it was conceived in the historical sources. Because the majority of written sources we have on the Roman army were written by upper-class historians, often from the senatorial order. And they have a real fear of lack of discipline in the soldiers. In fact, it's really seen uh, almost as a kind of infection or virus, ironically, given what we're going through uh, in the current world, in terms of the indiscipline could break out, it would spread amongst the soldiers, it would result in civil war and then anarchy. So there was a real fear. However, there's also a tension, and I keep coming back, I suppose, in, in all these discussions around the tensions that are inherent within how the army operates and the tension is this on the one hand the emperor has to make sure that the army is disciplined and doesn't fall into mutiny and revolt but on the other hand if he is too stern if he's too strict then that's likely to happen anyway so there's a balancing act and the way that that was managed was to devolve it to the local commanders so that discipline could be imposed on the soldiers. But if it went wrong, then the emperor was essentially uh, not directly involved within it and could blame it on the commanders. Now, there are particular commanders who were become famous for being disciplinarians. And sometimes it's not massively clear whether they genuinely were or that's the uh, appearance they wish to portray across Roman society, given what I said around the fear of indiscipline. A great example of that is one of the generals under Nero, a man named Domitius Corbulo, who took command of the legions in Syria. And there was always this perception in the Roman world that the eastern legions uh, were soft, they lacked discipline, etc. When Corbulo went out there, this allegedly is what he found, that the soldiers uh, lacked discipline, that they were negligent of their duties. And he went through a whole process with them over the cold winter months of hardening them, of making them sleep outdoors, etc. Um, and all of this is reported very heavily in the sources, but it's often difficult to tell. Is this genuine or is this a narrative that's created? So obviously not disciplining your soldiers too much will obviously break their morale. So how do they actually keep up the morale of their soldiers? There's a number of ways and I suppose mechanisms that were developed or evolved during the imperial period. And a lot of it was to do with how this military community was designed by the emperor, if, if we can use that term. 
And what I mean by that is that there are a number of mechanisms put in place that would create a sense of military community linked directly to the imperial regime. There's a number of aspects of that. So, for example, at particular points, often uh, when ascending to the throne or on particular anniversaries, the emperor would distribute donatives to the troops. In other words, he would distribute a lump sum payment to the soldiers. They would provide honorific titles to individual units, uh, reflecting their military valour, their exploits on the battlefield, or simply that they were known as being loyal, uh, perhaps more so than other units in particular circumstances. But they also use the structure itself of army life. So we have a fascinating document called the Feriale Geranum, uh, from the eastern provinces, which provides an insight into the religious calendar of the army camps. Now, what it's telling us is that the whole idea of the imperial cult, of the religious aspect of the imperial family, was really at the heart of army life and would be celebrated through festivals, through special days throughout the year. All of that, of course, was a relief from normal duties. So that fed into this sense of morale as well. And then behind all of that, of course, is the pay that's provided, the decorations that might be awarded to soldiers, and the benefits which are afforded to them when they complete their service. So there's a complex toolkit, really, which was used to maintain the morale of the troops. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. So we're going to talk about mutiny and all the, every time somebody mentions mutiny, all I can think of is a boat and a pirate <laughs> and a sword and, you know, saying, on oh guard, we are now taking over the boat. But obviously that is not what happened here in the Roman army. Can you give us any examples? Are there any examples? There are. I mean, it, it's worth saying that they are rare overall, um, but when they happen, they are incredibly dangerous for the security of the imperial regime. The best example we have takes place in AD 14. So this is the death of the first emperor, Augustus, and the succession of Tiberius. So it's worth saying at the outset that this is a very vulnerable point politically, the death of an emperor, the first emperor, of course, and the transition to a new ruler. What happens is that discipline amongst the troops on the Rhine and the Danube, which are the largest concentrations of legions nearest to Italy, 
completely breaks down. And in fact, the troops turn on the Centurions initially and then subsequently on the other officers. There are murders, there are killings. According to the sources we have, particularly Tacitus, who's writing about this event, it spreads amongst the legions like an infection. And there's a number of complaints that are put forward by the mutineers around poor pay, prolonged length of service, they've been in the legions too long, they should have retired. When they do retire, they're not given good quality land, and that the centurions are brutal towards them. So all of this really accelerates, and it's a point of incredible danger for the empire as a whole. What's really interesting is how this is essentially controlled. So there was a young prince of the imperial family in one of the army camps. Uh, his name was Germanicus, and he was there with his family. As the mutiny began to spread, he arranged for his family to be evacuated. They were no longer safe. And according to the sources, when the soldiers saw what was happening, that the imperial commander no longer trusted the safety of his family, they repented and the soldiers turned on the ringleaders um, and essentially uh, massacred them. And there was this sense of renewal amongst the legions are coming back together. What is interesting is that when the mutiny is put down, there is certainly a kernel of truth in the accusations that are put forward. So we're told that a tribunal is held of centurions to understand which of those have been too severe and to dismiss them and which of them should be kept within the army. So it's probably the best view we have of the dynamics of a mutiny. The other thing that's interesting for how we understand the army as a whole, and goes back to what I was saying earlier around the mobility of troops, is this spreads across a broad geographic front. So there is very clearly communication among soldiers within different camps and amongst the mutineers themselves, which tells us something around an aspect of army life which is often invisible to us. I want to know a bit more about a soldier. What would happen if he was seriously injured? Because, again, rosy idea in your head, thinking this is such a great, in theory, such a great establishment to be in is to be a soldier. But do they take care of their own if they're seriously injured or disabled, for example? Do, to, to an extent. So your, your kind of perception is, certainly isn't wrong. There are real political benefits in terms of how wounded soldiers are treated. And this was, this was understood in the imperial period, that it's very difficult to send troops into danger if they know that they won't be looked after if the worst should happen. So the imperial army had a mature and developed approach uh, to medical support in alignment with uh, the understanding of the day in terms of medical science, so that army units would have medical staff attached to them. Often we believe they were drawn from civilian life to essentially bring their medical knowledge into the army, and they were supported by those orderlies that are referenced earlier in terms of uh, soldiers who are on a promotion pathway. Now that's significant because it means that uh, soldiers who were wounded could be treated. We don't really understand the dynamics of that, but we know in some instances uh, hospitals existed in quite a sophisticated way. What was important was that 
commanders and emperors were seen to care for wounded soldiers. So we have accounts of emperors on the battlefield visiting wounded soldiers, supervising their care subsequently. If a soldier was wounded to such an extent that they could no longer continue in the army, they would receive a medical discharge and they were entitled to all the privileges and benefits afforded to a veteran who had completed their service normally on a scale that was in proportion to their length of service. So broadly speaking, they were looked after. Well, that's good to know because I was a little bit worried that you were going to say, no, they basically ended up in the streets and that's the <laughs> end of it, basically. Now, it's not to say that that didn't happen eventually, uh, depending on what happened to them after they left the army. And of course, you know, we know from the modern world that there can be real challenges for individuals in acclimatising to civilian life. But perhaps in comparison to uh, other regimes in the imperial, uh, sorry, in the ancient world, uh, there was this measure of care and at least being seen to provide support for wounded soldiers. So can soldiers win rewards for being the first over the town wall or, for example, helping their fellow soldiers? They could. And it was an important part of uh, maintaining morale and recognising the talents and exploits of individuals. But there was a gradual change of this uh, and of how this operated. So under the Republic, before the Empire was established, there were no real structured mechanisms for how decorations were awarded. It was very organic according to whichever commander uh, was leading on the ground. When Augustus established the empire, he wanted to put some structure behind this. And there's a number of accounts of the ways in which he made clear that decorations would only be awarded for cases of real valour and not as trinkets to recognise particularly favoured individuals. So he put together a very, uh, or at least his advisors did, a structured approach as to how uh, decorations would be awarded in line with the rank of individual soldiers up till uh, the senior commanders. So that was put in place. But again, very similar to what I mentioned around how emperors were seen to care for wounded soldiers, there were real benefits for an emperor being seen to bestow these awards on soldiers. And we have a great example of this during the Jewish war when Titus, the son of the emperor Vespasian, after the successful siege of Jerusalem, held a major parade with all the soldiers and were seen to award individuals for the valour they'd shown in battle. It was a real connection between individual soldiers and members of the imperial family and had very strong political connotations as well as recognising the bravery and courage of individuals. Am I mistaken that Caesar won uh, an award, I think was it being the first one over the city wall? I think that's right, yeah absolutely and that plays into um, the image that was created by members of the imperial family. I mean, obviously, Julius Caesar, although not an emperor himself, was a real precursor of what came next when Augustus became emperor and onwards through the Julio-Claudian dynasty and the dynasties which continued uh, after that. Being seen to be a soldier, being brave, courageous, leading from the front was really important in maintaining the loyalty of the soldiers and also in the broader image uh, of the emperor himself 
amongst the wider Roman world as being a strong military leader. Now, again, my rosy tinted glasses are going to come on. Um, I am not uh, a stranger to watching TV involving Romans and Roman things. Um, how did the upper class react to military service? Because just for me, all I can see, like for example, a gladiator or uh, Spartacus, you know, these <laughs> these upper class, I know, just laugh. I can hear all our, all our listeners laughing away. It's fun. I don't care. Um, <laughs> basically, were they just given these prominent positions? Because here you go, you are the son of a senator, become a general. I'm going to reference again one of these tensions that exists within how the army operates and how the emperor commands it. So the upper classes, in this case the senatorial order, um, the families which populated the senate, essentially provided the senior leadership of the army in terms of uh, commanding individual legions and commanding provincial armies. But this formed, in the most part, uh, temporary postings as part of a political career. So although there were individuals who demonstrated real competence for military affairs and uh, were selected time and again by the emperor to deal with particular military issues, in the most part they were arriving in an army camp to take command for a period of time and then to go back to Rome. There was no military academy, there was no equivalent of Sandhurst or West Point. So these individuals really had to rely on military handbooks, some of which survive, that tell them how to command. But then the experience of the officers on the ground, the centurions, is that backbone of the army as well. But there's a, the other part of that tension is then the relationship with the emperor. Because on the one hand, they have to be competent, they have to lead army units potentially into battle but otherwise keep the peace maintain the borders of the empire but if they are too successful they potentially pose a risk to the emperor himself and in AD 69 the year of the four emperors uh, when the new Flavian dynasty is created after a series of civil wars the Roman historian Tacitus uses this great phrase that a secret of empire was out, an emperor could be made elsewhere than at Rome. What he basically meant was emperors aren't just created in Rome, they're created in the army camps in the provinces of the empire. And therefore those commanders are a real risk to the emperor. So there's a very tight balancing act that both the emperor and the upper classes need to maintain in terms of competence in military command but not political risk to the emperor himself and I think actually it must have been quite difficult and challenging uh, for many members of the upper classes in terms of how they navigate some of those real challenges. So retirement is something very important obviously to all soldiers because they finally get their payout but I'm going to throw another curveball in here just because I like to do that uh, Sulla, for example, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Sulla actually got a lot of land for his retired soldiers. Am I correct? That's right. And uh, during the Republic, warlords like Sulla recognised the benefits of looking after your veterans. And in fact, those veterans of Sulla became almost a, a recognised political group 
uh, within the Roman world of absolute loyalists uh, to his political thought. And that continues into the empire itself. So when Augustus became emperor, and what he's trying to do is kind of de-escalate after a series of civil wars to bring structure and harmony, in a way, back to the empire, he recognises that the state has to take responsibility for uh, veterans, for retired soldiers, because otherwise it rests with individual army commanders and then they can build up political support from those veterans. So he takes control and says the state will support veterans. And it's basically done primarily in one of two ways. Either they're afforded land, um, which becomes theirs to farm, or they're given a financial payout. And increasingly it's the, it's the financial payout that's the, the way that that's adopted but obviously the veterans themselves are really significant because they're individuals who are respected who are highly trained and therefore could potentially be called back to service in the event of national crisis but they're politically loyal to the emperor and in the early stages of the empire we see these concentrations of veterans um, who increasingly uh, form, I suppose, a, a really important component of Roman society in being committed to the emperor and the imperial house. So they have a really positive benefit in terms of the provinces themselves. Of course, some soldiers continued their careers, and the high point that many soldiers were aiming for was to become the first centurion in the legion, uh, what's called the primus pilus, or first spear. And that's the rank that really, as an ordinary soldier, is the one you want to achieve. And the reason for that is it's seen as kind of the crowning glory of an army career. Depending on how long it takes you to get there, other options are then opened up in terms of career pathways in the imperial administration beyond military life itself. But just to give you an example of how significant that was, there's a uh, a really interesting altar that was uh, that survived over 2,000 years that was set up by a centurion called Maximus Gaetulicus. And what's fascinating about it is he has set up an altar in fulfilment of a vow he made when he was a young soldier to become a primus pillar. So in other words, he said to the gods, if you allow my career to continue, if you allow me to become primus pillars, first spear of the legion I will dedicate an altar to you and he did that but it took him 57 years to go from ordinary recruit through to first spear so you do the maths he was in his 70s when he reached that point but just imagine the experience the expertise the loyalty that someone like him had for the imperial house this is why the army the social mobility the promotion pathways it offers are so significant in terms of imperial politics that's absolutely incredible. I'm, I'm just curious, was there any, any negative relationships between the emperor and his soldiers? I'm assuming there are going to be some emperors, like maybe thrown Nero or Caligula, possibly into the mix. The relationship between the emperor and his soldiers, I would argue, was the most significant relationship that the emperor had to navigate, because the security of him, his family his political and personal survival rested on the outcome of that relationship. And throughout the imperial period, the emperor worked tirelessly to develop and nurture that relationship, to keep the soldiers loyal to him. 
And that was achieved in a number of different ways. We touched earlier on the image that the emperor creates. And predominantly the emperor wants to appear as Camillito. And what Camillito means is fellow soldier. In other words, to be seen as a soldier, to be one of the troops, to lead them, to be tough, to be disciplined, but to be fair as well. And emperors go to extraordinary lengths to achieve this. And we see examples of that visually in Rome on Trajan's column, the column of Marcus Aurelius, which are all around that imagery of the emperor amongst the soldiers. We also see it with some of the decisions that are made. So the invasion of Britain itself by the Emperor Claudius burnished his reputation as a military leader, even though he had absolutely no uh, background. But of course, when it did break down, it went incredibly wrong. And the, the best example we have is what I referenced earlier in AD 69, the year of the four emperors, where after the death of the emperor Nero, three temporary emperors attempt to take power until Vespasian founds the Flavian dynasty. And that civil war was created essentially because of a breakdown in trust between the legions and particular candidates for imperial power. And that really is the core theme of my book, Leading the Roman Army, because I was so interested to understand what the evidence is for how the emperors managed this balance between, on the one hand, controlling the army, but on the other hand, being seen to lead it and to maintain that powerful political balancing act to maintain their own personal and political security. So before we finish, please tell our listeners exactly the title of your book again and where they can get it. So the book's called Leading the Roman Army, 31 BC to AD 235. So it starts with the reign of the Emperor Augustus and goes right through uh, to the Severan dynasty. It's kind of the high point of the imperial period. You can get it from any good bookstore. It's published by Pen and Sword Books. I hope you enjoy it if you do read it, and I'd love to hear your feedback as well. Amazing, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us this absolutely amazing overview of the Roman army and of course breaking my rosy sunglasses so thank you so much for joining us thank you it's been tremendous thanks very much join us tomorrow when we will be talking to two lovely lady authors about how to write historical fiction we'll be looking specifically at a witchcraft trial from I think it's Essex and we'll be looking at insanity and uh, someone who spent a very long time in the bedlam and how you recreate that experience with scant information so don't miss that one don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there, and we have our own channel, and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes, because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time so do go over there and subscribe when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy mail checks invoices legal documents and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.